nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Just a few days away from the inauguration, I'm excited to see what happens. But in the meantime, I'm going to get right into talking with Senator Jim DeMint. He's a United States Senator from South Carolina, 2005 to 2013, and currently president of the Heritage Foundation. Senator, welcome to An Economy of One. Well, Gary, thank you. It's good to be with you again, and um, a happy new year. Thank you. Happy new year to you. I wanted to spend a couple minutes with you today because expectations are high next week after the inauguration of President-elect Trump to repeal Obamacare. And uh, I know there's a certain segment of the population that are expecting that to be repealed Friday afternoon and uh, have a different plan in place on uh, Saturday. How likely is it that Congress will repeal the Affordable Care Act on day one and give it to the president to sign? Gary, as you know, Republicans have um, run, have campaigned on repealing Obamacare for several cycles. Uh, that's been part of the appeal that's helped them win the House and the Senate and now the presidency. Mm-hmm. It's, there are no excuses. They, they have to repeal it. I believe it will happen. I think there's some pe- people who are uh, hedging, uh, saying we need to have a complete replacement in place first. Uh, that it, it does not need to happen. In fact, it's the wrong way to go. We need to take that first step of repealing Obamacare most of that can be accomplished with the reconciliation process that only requires 51 votes in the Senate, and then move to um, the uh, Agency of Health, Health and Human Services, where Tom Price can begin to dismantle some of the regulations that make insurance so expensive now, and then we can move to the states to get more alternatives for people. Uh, and But the repeal itself, Gary, would allow a transition where the changes would not begin to take place for more than a year, which makes sense since most of the insurance plans for this year are already in place. You know, I was going to ask you about that because I've been reading several articles. And, of course, everybody's got the headline on how to repeal and replace, and it's not going to be painful, and it's going to be extraordinarily painful, that kind of stuff. From your experience, Senator, is that the likely scenario that we'll get a repeal? I'll ask you about the reconciliation process in a minute, but we get a repeal, and then we start fixing it piecemeal over the next year or two? Yeah, I don't like the word piecemeal. I I learned as uh, someone working in the quality movement uh, as a consultant for a lot of companies that change really happens in a positive direction when you push decision-making down and make continuous incremental progress. That's what we need to do. A one-and-done central system here in Washington is just not going to work. So there are things like passing a law that individuals can deduct the cost of their health insurance. 
that businesses can deduct it if they help you pay for your own insurance, that uh, that individuals can buy health insurance from any state in the country mm-hmm. because some states have so many regulations that the policies are expensive. And we just keep going down the line, allow a lot of small businesses come together and buy insurance plans in bulk uh, so that the cost is less. One by one, step by step, we can make um, – health insurance in America more affordable and make it more portable so people can buy and keep it uh, instead of just losing your insurance every time you change employers. So there's a lot we can do. These plans are in place. Um, you know, really bothers me to hear people in the media say the Republicans have no idea. I mean, we've been working on ideas for, for really ever since I started in the House, and uh, they've been blocked for years. But now is the time to actually begin to improve, improve the health care system in America. Now, uh, let me ask you, and I don't really fully understand the workings of Congress, as many Americans don't, but can this be done through a reconciliation process, or will it be subject to a two-thirds vote or be subject to the bird rule? Or can the opposition to this hang it up for a while procedurally? The... Reconciliation process is primarily related to budget items, which means you can pass things that are consistent with the budget with 51 votes in the Senate, which means the parts of Obamacare that involve taxes and spending can all be wiped out with, um, with 51 votes. Okay. Actually changing the law, of, like mandates or on the regulations of uh, insurance, that may be harder. Uh, there, we argue about whether or not they can do that under reconciliation, but it's likely since the Senate and the House passed a bill in 2015 that effectively gutted Obamacare. They've already passed that. They'll probably go back to that. We're, we think they can get more as far as the insurance regulations, but one way or another they need to take that first step mm-hmm. because that signals to all the insurance companies and as well as Americans, that by the time we turn the corner into 2018, that there are going to be different choices of health insurance and different ways to buy health insurance. What is the likelihood that a newly inaugurated President Trump can essentially do a bunch of executive orders, eliminating some of the executive orders that President Obama put in place, around the Affordable Care Act, the different mandates and that kind of stuff. Is he capable of doing that? Is he likely to do that? Or is that not part of the overall big plan in working with Congress? I think you'll see uh, President Trump uh, very soon after his inauguration uh, do an executive order that wipes out most of Obama's executive orders. And so if anything related to Obamacare was done with an executive order, it can be repealed with an executive order. But a lot of the regulations on insurance have been done by the the Department of Health and Human Services, just regulations that they added that have a process to put in place with a uh, kind of a, a, a waiting period, a comment period, and you have to go through essentially the same process as you take that apart. But we've give it, laid all that out for the incoming president of what can be done with executive orders, what can be done through the agencies with reg, uh, just taking apart regulations, and what do you have to do with Congress. Uh, so the part with Congress is the hardest unless we can find eight or ten uh, Democrats 
who realize that the tide of the country has really changed. Mm-hmm. And a number of these Democrats in states where Trump won handily, uh, hopefully will be listening to a new way to do things. So, uh, But we need to do what we can with 51 votes and through uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and then try to do what play cleanup, basically, with Congress. You've got a lot of experience in Congress, certainly a lot of experience in in Washington politics and stuff. What's the political risk these senators and representatives are thinking? What's going through their head? Well, Gary, that's the best question of all, because that's really what's on people's mind. I think all the Republicans know we need to repeal it, get this thing out of the way, and get started on a new approach. But Obamacare has a lot of things in place that are going to continue to deteriorate throughout this year and probably next year, uh, even if they repeal it. Uh, because a lot of things have been done to the insurance markets mm-hmm. uh, and, and through regulations that just you can't do, you can't fix it overnight. And, and so Republicans are certainly worried that as this thing continues to deteriorate, that people are going to start blaming it on the fact that they repealed it instead of the fact that Obamacare has caused these problems. So it's going to be a communication battle in the media, but we just think Republicans need to be willing to stand up and defend what's right and what's true at this point. And and hopefully with Trump in the White House uh, and his uh, tweet account in hand, that we can at least get the truth to the American people on this. Obamacare has done a whole lot of damage to the insurance industry, very destabilized, um, a a lot of consolidation. You have fewer companies now and fewer plans, and the prices have just gone up, and they continue to go up until we start a new system, which is going to take a couple of years. You know, there's an old joke about how do you eat an elephant, and the answer is one bite at a time. Yeah. (laughs) Is this the elephant that we're going to have to eat one bite at a time over the next couple of years or so? we are, and we're going to. And folks are wondering. Uh, I mean, Republicans are saying as soon as they repeal it, then then they own it. Right. And um, but the fact is the, that Obama and the Democrats are going to own the insurance industry for a couple of years. It's just going to be up to the Republicans to prove that to the American people. I want to shift gears for just a couple of minutes. We got a minute and a half left or so. Read your book, Falling in Love with America, again a year or so ago, and and you mentioned in the, in the book that. A great political leader can awaken the people's spirits and inspire them to greatness. In your opinion, is President-elect Trump one of those leaders? Well, he certainly has that capability because he he has a lot of empathy with real people. And he's not tied in with the big interests that I mentioned in that book, that so much of Washington now is about big corporations, Mm -hmm. big unions, big banks, you know, big hospitals. Instead of working for the good of the American people, this has become a government of and for big special interests. Trump, uh, amazingly, as a person of great wealth and success, appears to identify more closely with the common man than he does with wealthy people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the feeling is mutual if you look at how Hollywood and corporate America looked at him. But I think he can be that that leader because he's already inspired a number of companies to stay here, believing that it's going to be a better environment. Um, and I think he's inspired a lot of Americans uh, that w- we should all, we should aspire to be a great country. So uh, I'm optimistic at this point. I, I see the people he's putting around him. Mm-hmm. It gives me a lot of confidence that he's going to put good people in place and delegate to them. So n- no one's perfect and 
we could find fault, whether it be with Ronald Reagan or George Bush or sure. a lot of these folks. But I think uh, Trump so far has demonstrated a lot of interest in keeping his promises. Well, we're not going to agree with everybody. My dad used to tell me if we both of us agree, one of us isn't needed. Are Americans falling in love with America again, in your opinion? I think that's one way to explain the election, because yeah. that's what Trump talked about. He not only making America great again, but doing things that are in the best interest of America, our trade agreements, our foreign policy. And I, and I think he refocused on what I talked about a lot in the book. Of this is a, a, has always been a bottom-up country of, mm -hmm. of people making decisions at the lowest level, the little platoons right. that Burke talked about. And I think without directly referencing it or, or even maybe knowing about it, uh, that's Trump's instinct that America is about individuals and that the government should work for the people. We've been talking with uh, Senator Jim DeMint. He was a senator from South Carolina from 2005 to 2013 and currently president of the Heritage Foundation. Senator, once again, as always, this has been a real treat for me, a true honor. Uh, you've done great work. You're doing great work over to the Heritage Foundation. I read your stuff and your colleagues' stuff, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Well, Gary, I encourage all of your listeners to go to Heritage.org and uh, stand with us because America is always worth fighting for. Excellent. I appreciate your thoughts. Appreciate your time today. All right. Thanks, Gary. Thank Bye -bye. you. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, in talking to Senator uh, DeMint, it got me thinking a little bit more about Obamacare. And it seems to be the uh, main thing that's going to be on the top of everybody's mind right after the inauguration. Will the Senate and House put together a bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare? Will they have a replacement strategy. I think the senator is correct that it's going to be voted on to repeal, but it's going to be replaced incrementally. We're going to take some of the more ominous parts of the Affordable Care Act and replace them with something new. And there's several things about the Affordable Care Act that's important to consider. One, it always frustrates me when Congress, on either side, both sides do this, but it seems more on the Democratic side, they get a bad piece of legislation passed, and then their defense is always, well, what else you got? What do you got? What's, what's the Republicans got? What, what are you going to use to replace this? Well, why do we have to replace bad legislature? Why can't we just simply get rid of it? Go back to the original system and start working on that. But no, that's not in the mind of a bureaucrat and politician, they have to replace something bad, generally with something worse and something bigger. But there's just a few things that needed to be done to the old style of health insurance to uh, essentially fix it, to make it workable again. Now, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, makes one size fit all. In fact, it mandates. And it mandates a lot of the Types of care, free preventative care, uh, mandatory mental health and drug abuse, free contraceptives, no lifetime maximum. All that adds to a huge, huge cost to 
health insurance and health care in general. So one of the things they ought to do is allow plans on the exchange from all different companies, different benefits, different schedules. They need to end the guaranteed issue. That That's a moral dilemma where someone can wait until they're actually diagnosed sick and then go get health insurance to pay for the procedure or the treatment. Another thing that needs to be done is health insurance needs to be able to cross state lines. That was a, a big deal before that every state had its own requirements for health insurance policies to be sold in that state. So big companies like a Blue Cross Blue Shield or something like that would essentially have to go to 50 different state insurance departments and get their policies approved for that state. And once it's approved for that state, it couldn't be used in another state without that state's approval. Now, there are some issues. One of them is pre-existing conditions. Now, in the past, pre-existing conditions, generally speaking, had a two-year waiver on your health insurance, but everything else would be covered. So if you had a pre-existing condition, uh, cancer or something like that, that that particular condition would be excluded for at least two years on your policy before the insurance would pick up costs. And oftentimes there might have been a higher premium for that risk. And sometimes that risk would have to be moved into like a state risk pool, but it could be accommodated. Final thing I think that health insurance needs to be, and that is portable. You need to be able to quit your job and not lose your health insurance. Now, you may have to pay for it, and that's kind of what the COBRA rules allowed for, but the COBRA rules were only 18 months, and then you had to go to another plan, a new employer, something like that. So some very simple things could be done to tweak the health insurance market, make it a lot better than it was, certainly a lot better than the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. Uh, we're not going to, I don't see us just flushing that on day one and then uh, replacing it on day one with something else. I think the logistics of that would be just too much. But let's start tweaking, see how it works, and make adjustments as we go. I think that makes a lot more sense than the direction we're going. Coming up next, Mark Perry is going to be joining me. One of my favorites, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll talk to Mark next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Mark Perry. He's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and professor of economics and finance at the University of Michigan's Flint campus. He's also the creator and editor of the economic blog Carpe Diem. Mark, welcome back to An Economy One. Happy New Year. Yeah, happy New Year to you too, Gary. I'm happy to be back on your show. I, I appreciate it. The closer we get to the inauguration, the more heated some of the discussions get out there. And one thing we keep hearing a lot about is imports and exports and the trade balance or the trade deficit, whichever way you want to look at it. So I wanted to touch base with you on really educating us about 
importers and exporters. I've I've said for years that the trade deficit is kind of meaningless when it comes to daily economics and macroeconomics and that kind of stuff because it's dollars changing hands and it's trade and and that kind of stuff. But give us the college professor expert explanation on importers and exporters and where that affects us and what the balance means or lack thereof. Yeah, well, I think a lot has happened over the last 20 or 25 years as we've moved into this, you know, global marketplace and this interconnected cross-border world where often, as I've written recently, that often our top exporters are also our top importers and American companies that import also export. And so I think um, we get kind of confused because we've got all these imaginary lines that are called national borders. And we somehow think that because goods are crossing over an imaginary line called the border between Canada and the U.S. or U.S. and Mexico, that that's somehow different than goods uh, that we see moving across the country when they go across state borders. And so, like you say, with the trade deficit, I mean, that's kind of meaningless because, first of all, countries don't trade with each other. Individual consumers and individual companies buy and sell products. So we think about, you know, U.S. having a trade deficit with Mexico and China, but it's really American consumers that made the choices that when they went to Walmart or, or American companies when they purchased goods, that they often, we buy foreign-produced uh, products. And so every transaction at the individual level, you know, at the individual transaction level, there's a satisfied buyer a satisfied seller. It's a win-win transaction. No one's been taken advantage of. So it's not like a sports event where one team wins and the other team loses. That's how we hear it from Trump. When we have individuals trading, whether it's two individuals locally or an individual that goes on a foreign vacation or buys products from, let's say, a banana from Costa Rica, that the buyers and sellers are always made better off. So then the idea that, well, when we total all this up, all of a sudden there's a trade imbalance, so that means somebody's been taken advantage of. That's just not consistent with economic reality. And, and even, like, as you say, trade deficits are not necessarily bad. Um, the implication is they're always bad, I guess, maybe because the word deficit sounds bad. But people, if you shop at your local grocer every week and buy $100 worth of groceries um, and they never buy any of the products or services that you produce or provide, then you would have an ongoing trade deficit with your local grocery store. And you would never think of that as making you worse off. You're better off because you want the food and the grocery store is open because they want the money. So, yeah, so there's a lot going on here. But, yeah, where, where should we go with this? Well, you have to. A country, an individual, has to have a certain level of wealth in order to create the deficit, in order to buy the stuff. I mean, if we're all broke, then we might uh, not have that deficit. But to me, it reflects a certain amount of wealth in a country. I know there's a lot that goes into the equation as far as, you know, the exchange rate and the value of the dollar and all that kind of stuff. But I look at it by uh, the standpoint, hey, at least we're rich enough to buy the stuff. Well, yeah, and that's why often when they report the monthly trade statistics, they always report exports, and that's positive. They report imports, and that's supposed to be negative um, on the U.S. economy. And I often just take exports and imports and add them together to report the total amount of trade that takes place every month, because that's really what's important, is that we have lots of international transactions going on. And so I think it's better to look at the total amount of trade, because, again, every transaction, whether it was an export or an import, there was a 
satisfied buyer or seller here and a satisfied buyer or seller in, on, on, in another country. And then even the trade deficit, when we look at goods and services, that that has to be balanced by an inflow of capital. And so really, when we look at all of the transactions and, and the, um, you know, trade flows and capital flows and what goes in and what goes out, that they're really, everything has to balance overall for what we call the balance of payments. And so when we have a trade deficit, it has to be offset by a surplus, which is an, a capital inflow. So it's just that we buy more of other countries' goods, and they buy more of our assets and financial securities. And so it all balances out in the end, and people don't usually understand that, or it doesn't usually get reported very accurately. You know, one of the things in one of your columns that I didn't really think about. I know that every vehicle that is in this country has a percentage of parts manufactured in this country and a percentage imported from other countries. But it surprised me from your column that General Motors and Ford and those guys are not the uh, top rated American, the American made index. Uh, right. They're not the top of the list, are they? <laughs> No, and actually it's interesting because it's the uh, cars.com. They do this every year. I think it comes out in around June or July, and they do um, the most American-made cars, and they have this index. And actually what's interesting is that they've been doing this for maybe 10 years or even longer. And when they set up the criteria in the beginning, the rules were is that to qualify as an American car, you had to have a minimum of 75% domestic content. Now, what's happened is over time, you know, um, all of these automakers use so many imported parts, including GM and Ford and Chrysler, that usually every year there's only about 10 different car models that even qualify at the 75% level. And in some years, they don't even get 10, so they don't even, they can't even have a top 10. But yeah, so what's been happening, and I think I showed this for 2016, the most recent data, is that um, I think there was eight cars that or you know models that qualified and five of those were hondas or toyotas right <laughs> you know so yeah even what's an american made car or an american car these days it's it's kind of squishy or fuzzy and and in a sense it doesn't really matter but that is true i'm sure people don't maybe realize that but even most of the cars we're buying even if it's a gm or ford it usually has about half of the content half of the parts are from out of the country including places like mexico so that's where if we start putting tariffs on Mexico, that that means U.S. firms and producers and manufacturers and factories, a lot of what they're buying is from out of the country. And in fact, that's another thing people don't realize that we always think of finished goods coming into the country and automobiles or television sets. But about maybe 60 to 65 percent of what comes into the country as imports are unfinished goods and raw materials and parts and supplies and machinery and equipment that it's U.S. companies are buying foreign-produced products so that it makes them more competitive, allows them to be more successful, more, um, you know, more profitable so that then they can hire more people here. So it really helps U.S. workers indirectly by when their manufacturers, when manufacturing companies are able to get the, some of the cheapest inputs from out of the country. So again, if you think of foreign or GM, if they can get cheap foreign steel and cheap foreign parts, it makes them more profitable and more successful and allows them to hire more American workers in the long run. One thing that you talked about in, in one of your articles, and I think he was quoting an article from the Wall Street Journal or something, I don't know, but I hadn't really thought about it. We think of, you know, let's just take General Motors, for example, making cars 
or parts in Mexico, having a plant in Mexico, we naturally think, well, they're going down there to get cheap labor and bring the product here. But there was a factor, a variable in there that, that I wasn't aware, and that is stuff made in Mexico, if GM wants to sell it to another country that coming out of Mexico, they might have more favorable trade agreements than if they made it here and sent it to that foreign country. Yeah, that's right. And people should understand this is where Trump, you know, comes. It's very kind of superficial. But when you dig into the details, it is the case that, you know, first of all, small small cars are not very profitable. Plus, 60 percent of the cars in the United States sold last year were trucks and and SUVs. So people in the United States don't really want small cars. People in the rest of the world love small cars. And that's standard everywhere else out of the United States. And so it's also the case that so you think of GM, they're producing cars in 40 or 50 countries probably in selling cars in 150 countries. And so often when they're selling cars in Europe or in Asia, Mexico has more favorable trade agreements with a lot of those countries than the United States does. So it's more cost effective for GM to produce a car in Mexico and send it to Europe than to produce the car here and send it to Europe because we pay a higher tariff or the importers pay a higher tariff on American cars than Mexican cars. So Mexico does have some advantage in terms of international trade agreements that the United States doesn't have. And so, again, when you look in what's going on behind all the kind of uh, bluster, um, the GM and Ford often have certain reasons that they produce small cars in Mexico, and it's often because of lower labor cost, of course, but also because of these other trade uh, uh, you know, considerations that right. really they have to take into account to stay successful. You know, I just never really thought about that. But, you know, I'm glad you mentioned tariffs real quick president-elect trump has put the tweet out there i guess that's the newest presidential communication channel is twitter which you know i I got no problem with they probably said the same thing about roosevelt when he went to the radio but he's talking about uh essentially border taxes border penalties they're tariffs they're taxes i've talked to several people and i've probably talked to you about this in the past But, you know, we can't put a tariff on another country without them retaliating with a similar tariff, can we? Well, sure. I mean, that's another danger of protectionism and and why, you know, the Wall Street Journal said that Trump is the first protectionist president we've had since the 1920s. And and that really presents some economic concerns. But, yeah, that's another problem with imposing tariffs on Mexico or China or Japan or whoever it is, is that then they often retaliate and put tariffs um, to kind of retaliate. They put tariffs on American goods. So, you know, we think we're going to be somehow better off because of this, but it often backfires or there are unintended consequences. And, And first of all, tariffs, um, border taxes, whatever we call them, they're paid for by Americans. So we always think, well, we're going to penalize or put punitive tariffs on Mexico. But really, it's you pay, it's like a sales tax that gets paid once it crosses over, and it's paid for by the buyer, who's an American. So it's not like the Mexicans pay this 35% tariff, it's Americans. And then again, like you say, it's often the case that then once we start putting trade restrictions and erecting trade barriers, that then the other countries, when they're shut off from our market, then they shut off American producers from their market, and then that causes both countries to suffer, and that's just not a good formula for making America great again. we got about 45 seconds left. I wanted to ask you real quick, Mark, one of the headlines I read the other day talked about the Department of Commerce enforcing a tariff 
on washing machines. And then I read the article, and it was an anti-dumping penalty on, I forget what company out of South Korea or something. about Samsung. Samsung. I think it was Samsung. About dumping washing machines below market price. Probably not fair, but can you give me about a 45-second explanation of dumping, and should we be concerned about that as well? Well, again, I mean, if if they're willing to sell us, well, really, ideally, if they would send us washing machines for free, that would be the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> but if they're willing to sell us washing machines below their cost of production, I mean, consumers are not going to complain about that. It's only American producers. And it's not even really clear that a company would intentionally underprice their products and sell them at a loss because then somehow they would get some long-term gain. So this whole idea of predatory pricing or dumping, it, it really doesn't have a lot of basis in economic reality. Well, you know, given Congress and, and politicians nowadays, uh, giving things away and making the profit up on volume probably makes sense to them. So, well, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. We've been speaking with Mark Perry. He's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and professor of economics and finance at the University of Michigan's Flint campus. He's a creator and editor of the economics blog Carpe Diem. We have that on our website. I check it. Uh, Just about every day, see what you're writing out there. Mark, once again, this has been a true pleasure and honor for me. Really appreciate you giving us a little bit of time and and look forward to uh, chatting with you again. Yeah, and happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Thank you, Mark. Have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, something I've noticed since uh, November 8th, the election and victory of Donald Trump to be uh, president, now president-elect, is not, not only did I, have I noticed a change in overall attitude out there, just, just people you meet in the store, people you interact with, there's a difference in attitude. It's like the the clouds have parted a little bit. The the best analogy I've come up with is it's it's like having a biopsy and the test coming back negative. I mean you, you just fear the worst, but then when it comes back and it's okay, you, you just feel good. And we saw in the last week the Small Business Institute uh, more optimistic than they've been since the year 2000 or something like that. Now, small businesses are the backbone of America. 99% of all jobs are in small business. Now, small business is a little different than, than what you might think. I think the definition of small business is businesses with less than 400 employees. When I think of small business, I think of businesses with less than, you know, 40 employees or something. But so it's a pretty big number even though it's classified small business but that's where most of the jobs are created now since the election i I haven't heard anybody uh connect these dots but uh since the election i've been seeing a lot of headlines about jobs being created in the united states and jobs moving back to the united states Most recently, Amazon is going to create more than 100,000 full-time jobs in the next 18 months. 100,000. Alibaba's Jack Ma 
uh, met with President-elect Donald Trump and talked about creating one million U.S. jobs over the next five years. Alibaba is kind of the Amazon of China. This guy's pretty smart, and uh, he could do it here. Fiat Chrysler, going to put a billion dollars into the U.S. and add 2,000 jobs. Uh, SoftBank, SoftBank first U.S. investment uh, after the Trump talks, generates 3,000 jobs. They're out of Japan. Dow Chemical announced 100 new jobs. IBM, IBM lays out a plan to hire 25,000 people in the U.S. Now, companies are rushing to link these jobs to the optimism around Trump and after meeting with, with Trump. But uh, I haven't seen these headlines in a long, long time. I mean, you've seen the big headlines on Ford, keeping plants here, moving plants here, Fiat Chrysler, uh, Sprint, uh, plans to hire 5,000 U.S. workers, Black & Decker's bringing back manufacturing jobs, uh, Apple is expanding manufacturing in Arizona. When was the last time you saw a compilation of headlines like that? For the last several years. We've seen so-and-so moving jobs to China, so-and-so moving jobs to Mexico, closing plant here, closing a plant there. Jobs were leaving. It doesn't take, it doesn't take bribes to keep jobs here. What it takes is the freedom to make money. The idea is there's a, a, an optimistic feeling around Donald Trump becoming president, that if he can keep his campaign promises, regulation will diminish and taxes will go down. The two things that cause businesses, two of the main things that cause businesses to leave our economy, regulation, taxes. Cost of employment is expensive, but it's only expensive if productivity is low. American workers are the most productive workers in the world. So we can absorb most of the wages, reasonably speaking. What small business can't do is absorb the cost of regulation. EPA down your, your uh, throat every day, OSHA, uh, everybody down your throat every day preventing you from doing business. Now, I'm not in favor of an unsafe uh, workplace, and I'm not in favor of destroying the environment. Don't get me wrong. But regulation and taxes is creating a lot of the optimism out there, and companies are reacting immediately by bringing jobs and manufacturing into our economy. It's a good thing, as Martha Stewart would say. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our the views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.